I'm pleased to be joined by Dr. Ryan Boyd. He is a computational social and behavioral scientist at Lancaster University, where he researches language and how language can predict personality and behavior. Ryan, welcome to the Nature and Nurture podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So I'd, I'd love to hear a brief overview of, of your work and, and how, how you got interested in it. Yeah, yeah. So where to begin? Thousands of years ago. Um, so I'll start, I guess, with a, a little bit of, I'll, I'll give like an abridged history, I guess, of, of Ryan Boyd's academic life. Um, so I started out uh, in psychology in undergrad um, at a, was, at the time, it was a satellite, joint satellite school between IU and Purdue University, and just kind of chose psychology uh, on a lark. It sounded interesting as a major. Um, took, a, took a semester of it and was like, I don't think I like psychology <laughs> anymore. And then uh, decided I would stick with it for another year or so. Uh, before switching to something else and had a couple of really, um, really just absolutely fantastic classes. So I, I took in just like an intro to social psych classes taught by um, Craig Hill and a developmental psychology class taught by Michelle Druin. And it, they, they both kind of introduced me to a, a really deep and interesting world of psychology that I hadn't seen before. So at some point there, particularly in the social psych space, something clicked. And I thought, this is just something interesting, something about the material, something about um, the instructor. He's one of these guys, like any question you would ask him, he had just like the most thoughtful answer to. And I was like, I want to be like that guy. I want to I want to be as smart as, as Dr. Hill is. Uh, and so I kind of got this idea of social psychology lodged in my mind is, is something to pursue. Fast forward uh, a little bit, and I went off to uh, a PhD program at North Dakota State University. It was social. It was a social and health psychology PhD. Um, and just kind of by happenstance, one of the first projects that that I was involved in when I was there is working with um, Michael Robinson and one of the students in his lab, who's more senior than me, Adam Fetterman. Adam was really interested in. Uh, like political psychology. He was a big John Jost fan. Um, and so he had some thoughts on a project about, let's see if we can find some kind of deep psychological differences between liberals and conservatives or Democrats and Republicans, stuff like that. And so basically one of the first things I was tasked with um, was going and trying to collect a bunch of language data from uh, wherever I think we start off with like maybe liberal or like news articles from left-leaning websites and news articles from right-leaning websites and it was like pretty painful and tedious you know scrolling endlessly through through like MSNBC and copying pasting articles and stuff mm -hmm. but once we got to a certain point they were like okay we've got this software linguistic and current word count Luke you take the texts you run them through there and uh, you'll get a bunch of numbers out that tell you about the psychology of the, the authors or of the, you know, each website or something like that. And I ran it a little bit and I didn't really understand it that well. It was all still very new to me. And most of the work I was doing uh, kind of stayed in 
really kind of complicated intersection of like cognitive psychology, personality, trying to understand like the cognitive processes that kind of coalesce into personality, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, so this and, natural language processing stuff was already quite well established by the time you were getting started. It was kind of in the in this weird adolescent phase, we'll say. So like the the first Luke two thousand seven was the one at the time, um, and it had been around for a couple of years already. It was the first version where people started to really say like, "Oh, this is something we can do." You know, at the time, people had been collecting language data in a lot of different forms for decades. So you know, if you ran like a mock jury study or something like that. Um, you might like videotape it and, you know, transcribe the, the conversations or stuff like that. Because doing any kind of coding of the text was a huge pain in the ass and, and people just didn't do it for the most part because it was so tedious um, with so little payoff. And Luke 2007 is one of these first programs where people start to say like, oh, maybe we can take this and, and start using it on our data. So there, there was like this kind of rising tide of like text analytics stuff in psychology, but hadn't really, it, I would, I mean, th- this is debatable, but it certainly then it hadn't reached anywhere near like kind of a mature point yet. Um, despite the fact that people have been using computers to do this for decades up to that point, there were people doing this, you know, in the sixties and seventies even, but it was, it was, it was all kind of this primordial NLP and psychology stuff that, it was right around that time, 2007 to 2012, we'll say, mm-hmm. that there was kind of this, things just started to come together, um, computing power and, and things like that. Uh, yeah, so it, there's like this kernel that existed and I, it was completely lost on me. <laughs> uh-huh. So when you, were, when you first decided to do a PhD, did you imagine doing either language work or computational work? Or had you, had you envisioned doing like more traditional social psych experiments where you're like maybe, um, I don't know, just working with large groups of people? You know, I, when I first decided to go to grad school, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I had no idea. I knew I wanted to do something in social psychology, but I didn't have any idea what that was really. Um, and you know, that's one of the nice things about uh, working with Michaels. He did a lot of research on a lot of different topics. And so in, in the time that I was working with him there, um, I got to kind of try out a lot of different stuff. So I was doing stuff with the NLP type of stuff, but didn't not like ultra formally, it was just kind of like, here, check this out. But then also lots and lots and lots of lab studies. And as, as I started doing more lab studies, um, you know, we go through this process where we just design these kind of painstakingly careful experiments for the lab. And, you know, you, I remember coding up this one study. Um, it was like a joystick study where, you know, essentially there's like a circle bouncing around the screen and the participant had to chase it with a joystick. And you're trying to like quantify like how they're moving around based on whether the circle's chasing them or they're chasing the circle and so on. And it, it was just like, I don't, I, I, you know, probably got like five hours of sleep that whole week, like working on this thing, got the data back. And it was just like, 
atrocious data. And even with the data that was there, like you could only really quantify it a handful of different ways. If you're being generous, maybe like 10, 15 different measures um, of like how people are moving their joysticks, never correlated with anything. And that's when it started to click for me, like, you know, with this language analysis stuff, I can just have someone write for like five minutes and I can extract just this whole kind of battery of psychological information. It's almost like giving someone, because at the same time, we were also giving a lot of self-report questionnaires. And so it's like, you know, I'd look at it, we'd go through this whole process to get like maybe 30 or 40 self-report measures. And then like, you know, a couple of computer-based like performance measures, or I could just, have somebody write for five minutes and extract the like twice as much data from that information. And so that's when it really started to click for me. Like, I think this, this language stuff is like something I can do. And when I started to learn more about how Luke worked, I was like, well, hell, I can do that. Like, I, this seems simple enough. So it, it started to, I went from like my first encounter with it, just being like, I don't know, this is cool, but I don't really get it to like, just suddenly I was, I was absolutely absorbed by it, just completely fixated, um, which, you know, honestly, for me, in retrospect, thinking about like kind of a graduate trajectory, for example, super duper lucky, because I came in not, not really with any strong, I, I wasn't like passionate about a certain area or anything like that. And it was just like, through happenstance and through kind of gain exposure to a lot of different stuff and working with Michael, um, it, the, the language stuff, it just clicked. I just absolutely latched onto it. And like, hey, this sounds cliche and I don't want to like make it sound, I don't want to like glorify it necessarily, but I was like obsessed, like beyond an unhealthy level of obsession where like going to the office and work all day like tinkering and doing you know writing code and doing stuff for language analysis then like go home and like check out just i'd go to like used bookstores and like see if i could just find anything on language analysis and like dig out these like nasty old musty books and just you know pay like a dollar and just obsess over them uh, it was just something that clicked with me so deeply which is one thing that you know a lot of people like we'll say like, oh, it's really important to be passionate about something if you're going to do it in grad school. And I was like, eh, I don't know about that. But then that it definitely made a, a world of difference. Um, and then, you know, through that and through, through kind of a long, um, it's a long and complicated story, so I won't bore you with it, but uh, ended up going down after I got my uh, master's at NDSU went down and uh, continued on my PhD with working with Jamie Pennebaker at UT Austin. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting to, to hear all this because reading your bio, I would have assumed that you were a data scientist turned psychologist and not the other way around. Yeah. To, it, and, you know, it's, there was an interesting thing I noticed when I was at NDSU. So like when I was a kid, I wanted to be, I basically wanted to like make video games. Um, but we didn't have a computer at home or anything like that. So I'd like uh, go to the library or like, I remember my uh, grandmother bought me like a book at C++ and it was like, you know, one of those thick tomes. So I would just like sit there at night uh, after I was supposed to be asleep as like, you know, a fifth grader or something like that, like hide under the blankets with a flashlight and this dense book on C++, just like pouring over it and studying it and, and so on. 
Um, and then after a certain point, I kind of like moved away from it. I, I did a bunch of like programming for like, you know, Texas instrument calculators and things like that, just as a hobby. But by the time I, I went to college, I kind of dropped all of that. And it was really at um, NDSU where I started to notice that, where um, there was stuff that we were doing in the lab that was like, I know enough about programming, just enough to be dangerous, right? But I wouldn't, you know, the stuff I was doing code-wise was stuff that like, to be honest, like an undergrad in, in computer science would have run circles around me. But it was so out of the ordinary in psychology um, that it, it really, I think in a lot of ways gave me a huge like that. But I was suddenly able to do things that other people weren't doing. And from there, especially with language analysis, it kind of, they, they just came together so naturally. Like, you know, working with language data computationally, like the more you want to do new stuff, the more you have to be able to write that into code. And then once you go deeper and deeper down that rabbit hole, it's like, well, hell, the 90% of the internet is text data. And if I want to get that, I can either go back to copying and pasting it and being miserable in an office, or I can just spend a day, write a script to do it for me and, and let the magic happen that way. Um, so the the interests kind of co-evolved together, um, but not, not, I don't know, maybe, maybe there's some deeper connection there. Um, there probably is, but like, yeah. I've never thought about that deeply, to be honest. Well, it makes a lot of sense, especially hearing that, that you did have that earlier interest that you sort of reconnected with. So working with James Pennebaker, who I know has done a lot of work with, with language and personality, I don't know how much of his work was computational, at least maybe before you came around. So is this something new that you brought to the table once you started your PhD? Uh, I, I'm told that that's the case, yeah. So like, uh, Jamie is, uh, he's, he himself, he like, he knows how to program and stuff like that. Like, I think he he's he's very humble about it. He downplays it and I don't think he, does a lot of active coding himself, but uh, he understands it. And he understands the logic and this, the structure of how coding works and what kind of can and can't be done with it. Um, it. Which I think, you know, in in many ways has been a huge strength for him. There's this, I'll, I'll go on a side tangent real quick and I promise I'll come back to the question. You know, there's this cliche uh, in, kind of in the computer science world, but also in just kind of the software engineering world where like you want to have a boss who also used to be a software engineer because they understand when they ask you to do something, like they understand everything that comes with that. If they're like, oh, build this website or have this program do X, Y, and Z, like they actually understand what they're asking you to do. Whereas if you get somebody who comes in um, with no experience whatsoever, They'll just make these kind of outrageous requests because they don't understand just the sheer amount of like work underneath what they're asking you to do. And I think that uh, Jamie's very much the same way where he, he's, he's got enough sense of how that stuff works. Now, when I showed up uh, to his lab, there were, so there were people there that were doing stuff that was um, still quite sophisticated. So Cindy Chung, uh, I think was maybe a postdoc in his lab at the time. And she was doing some kind of, uh, she was doing a bit of like part of speech tagging and a bit of topic modeling, but in a very um, kind of manual way. 
uh, it's how a psychologist would do it, not like how a computer scientists would do it. And so that is one thing. I was already kind of on a roll, like cranking out um, software to do a lot of these tasks already. So, um, you know, and Jamie has said several times, like when I got to the lab, um, everyone there was a Mac person except me. And not for any particular reason, just like what I'd always used and was comfortable with. And I was just pumping out a bunch of software that would only work on PC because of the languages I was writing it in. And within a few years, everyone else in the lab was using PC as well. So, you know, I think I, I brought kind of a, a computational sensibility to the lab, so to speak. But also, you know, part of it was just like, putting together and like giving these tools out to everyone I could so that they could also do more computational stuff as well. Um, I've, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, so, <laughs> so to jump from the more methodological aspect to the, to the actual findings, what were you looking at and what, what did the increased computational power allow you to do that hadn't been done before? Mm, it's a good question. Uh, so one, it, it, the, the first one is actually harder to answer. So I was looking at a whole bunch of stuff. So this is, this has always been really from the get-go, one of the things I've loved about language analysis. I often describe it to people that uh, things like NLP for me uh, are very much, I, I refer to it kind of as a magic telescope, um, which is not a great metaphor, but the idea being that like anything that, it kind of catches my interest or that I'm curious about, I can just go look at it through the lens of language and get some answers uh, about it. So, you know, this has allowed me to just kind of look at a whole broad range of topics, uh, a lot of political psychology stuff, uh, values, um, self schemas, culture, cognition, kind of storytelling, just all these different kind of disconnected areas of psychology, or, you know, disconnected, so to speak. It's all connected. Um, so, you know, early on, the stuff that I was looking at, uh, I was really interested in kind of language for language's sake, so to speak, and how, like, really particular kind of linguistic -y types of things would just relate to, we'll say, like, everyday behavior. So, like, you know, there's, there's a, and actually, this is what I'd done for my master's thesis, which was uh, not a, good, it wasn't a good thesis. So like, don't, don't dig it up and read it unless you, you really need to fall asleep. Um, but there's like a, a kind of vaguely linguistic theory called English prime. Um, I won't go into details on it, but basically it's kind of a rule set that you impose on yourself when you're using the English language. It's supposed to try to kind of allow you to be more flexible in your thinking and stuff like that. And so I was looking at stuff like, well, do people who just kind of naturally use more of these violations, do they engage in behaviors that suggest greater cognitive rigidity, for example? So if you're using a lot of these English prime violations, um, do you see people in kind of more of a fixed way or a flexible way? Do you see the world as more dynamic or static and stuff like that? interesting theory. I never found much with it, but I was approaching a lot of stuff like that. So kind of an individual differences mindset, but th this kind of very low level type of stuff rather than kind of uh, the directions I kind of went into later, which were more just kind of broader personality constructs, we'll say. So, you know, like the big five and stuff like that. 
It sounds um, related to, especially to openness, what you're just describing. Totally, totally. Yeah, and that that's where like, you know, in, in kind of a funny circular way, because I when I was at NDSU doing all this personality process stuff, where it's like, you know, you and you some of my earlier um, publications are like this, where like, you know, one of them was we revived this old paradigm from really like the 1950s, um, where like you put some headphones on a person and you play a sound in one ear or the other, and then you have them make a judgment. Uh, about something like you know a dot on the screen or something like that and there's this stuff where um basically the the general finding we found the same thing as well is like when you play a sound in one ear it tends to bias how you perceive things so like it'll bias it a little bit in one direction or the other based on which ear it's like the super i don't know maybe this is actually more interesting to, to you than it is to me but like to me i was like this is like it's interesting, but it was like such boring. It's like a dry finding to play around with. But we're basically like looking at that particular like low level cognitive process and trying to see do people who are more susceptible to this, are they more kind of egocentric? Do they impose that same cognitive process on the world around them? And at the time that was super duper, like a boring way to approach the world. But now I'm basically doing like the exact same thing with language analysis. And I think it's like the most exciting thing in the world. So I, I couldn't even tell you why one of them is so interesting to me and the other one isn't. But um, yeah, and so like a, a lot of it is this kind of like these low level, we'll say like facets of personality. So like kind of openness and stuff like that, um, which is also kind of morphed into looking at things like um, the social behaviors or like how you can quantify a social behavior through how language unfolds over time and stuff like that. Yeah, for language, it definitely sounds more interesting being able to look at, at things like behavior and personality rather than like grammar and phonemes and all these, these things that kind of went over my head when learning about some of them. Yeah, totally. And this is, you know, this is one of the interesting things about doing this type of stuff in psychology is there's like kind of nested between different disciplines like linguistics to me is like such a dry dry discipline and that's like not to knock the field at all i i get it i get why people are like into it and fascinated by it but like to learn about the those like those low level features it just it, it it's torturous it's absolutely torturous <laughs> to sit through like a, a lecture on phonemes. Um, and, you know, similarly, there's a lot of people in psychology who like look at language from a completely, so like psycholinguistics, which is much more about kind of the generation and processing of language. So it's also very cognitive and often very neurological as well. And even to me, uh, it, that is like, there's interesting research there, but I, I could never do that type of stuff. Like I'm purely for whatever reason, it, it comes back to this, like, this somewhere deep down nested interest in, like, the social psychology, like, to, to the point where these days, often the way I describe it is not, um, not like language analysis or NLP, but the study of verbal behavior specifically. So it's like, what does this kind of behavior that you engage in, in generating and putting your thoughts out into the world, what does that tell us about what's going on behind the curtain? Um, whether it's kind of 
you posting something on social media or you like interacting with a friend, whatever you're doing to generate language. Uh, I want to be there and, and analyze that. Yeah. So you, you mentioned how all over the place your interests are, but what are some of the, your favorite findings of the last, well, maybe, I guess we could start with your PhD. We can boil it down to one if that's possible. Oh man, if I can boil it down to one. I'm trying to think, so many good ones. I'm trying to remember what all was in my PhD. I know it was three, it was like one of those like kind of three paper packages. The the mm-hmm. the one in the PhD that I remember the best was probably actually I think there were two studies that were looking at um like old-timey playwrights which is so like there was one we did uh, it was basically an authorship attribution study uh on a play that was you know hypothesized to be written by Shakespeare um it was one of these things where we were approached by uh, an actual like Shakespeare scholar uh I believe it was Robert Fulkenflick uh was the guy who approached us you know he basically gave us the the scoop and said there's this play it was allegedly this guy says he discovered it he says it's an old Shakespeare play could you analyze it and like tell us whether it's Shakespeare and you know my initial reaction was like give me a break like I'm not a Shakespeare scholar but I was like I'm pretty sure if people are claiming to find Shakespeare plays they're probably liars and like I don't buy that one bit and so you know I'm, I'm happy to like so the guy's name was Louis Theobald, who, who say, discovered the place. And there's, like, a really interesting, rich history between uh, him and kind of Shakespeare and all this other stuff as well. But uh, we end up kind of doing this thing where we were blending several different areas together. So it was this, there was the authorship attribution aspect of it, which is, okay, we have this play, and we want to just approach it without any knowledge of who wrote it. And it could have been written by Louis Theobald, Shakespeare, or potentially this other guy who's one of Shakespeare's friends, John Fletcher. Um, and so, you know, there's kind of this classic authorship attribution thing where it's like, okay, let's look at the language of this play called Double Falsehood and just see, is it most similar to Shakespeare or Theobald or Fletcher? Um, and But there were other kind of interesting layers on top of that. So we approached it from a very psychological approach. So more to this, to the sense of, excuse me, um, not like, does this play use the word as at the same rate as Shakespeare? Like, what is the psychology of the author who wrote this play, whoever it is? How does this psychological profile match the psychological profile of Shakespeare, of Fletcher, of Theobald? Uh, and actually, as it turned out, it was, I think it was maybe the first three acts or three, maybe the first like 60% of the play turned out to look an awful lot like Shakespeare, like overwhelmingly like Shakespeare. And then most of the rest of it looked like it was his friend, John Fletcher, with just kind of little bits and pieces of Louis Theobald, uh, getting in there and probably making some edits, which is ironically exactly what Louis Theobald said he did, but I don't think anyone believed him at the time. And so that was that was a really fun project just for a lot of reasons. One of them was, uh, it was just like, it felt so, like, you know, I, I am on paper 
in a lot of ways by design, like a very traditional psychologist, like undergrad, grad, grad programs, all psychology through and through. I took like damn near every psychology class on the books in undergrad. Um, and so like to be working on something that was like Shakespeare, it's like, this feels like something a college professor would do. Like what my stereotypes of like, what's academia all about. So it was a lot of fun there, but it was also like, okay, we've got kind of literary history with psychology, with machine learning. It was just, just like really yeah, cool really intersection of three areas. So, so much fun. Mm-hmm. And like, just as like a little side note, one thing that I found really interesting about that whole process was after that paper came out, uh, there was like, there, I, I learned how political the Shakespeare world is. Um, like I had, I had a Shakespeare scholar reach out to me and like, tell me like, you have to be careful, like who you piss off when you're publishing about Shakespeare. Cause they'll like come after you. Like, I felt like I was going to get like beat up in a dark alley by a bunch of guys wearing frocks or something like that, which added to the, the fun of the whole thing. But mm-hmm. that's our, and then I ended up in England. So kind of belly of the beast. So, yeah. So did these Shakespeare scholars, did most of them agree with your findings? It was, it was, uh, most I don't know a lot of them Mm -hmm. did so it's like you know this is it we didn't go in despite what the press said you know a lot of the press did the usual like oh scholars discover new Shakespeare play but I do feel like I've heard of it so it must have made news right yeah and it it got uh, pretty good press coverage when it came out and of course the truth is is like we're not we didn't like it's not like Jamie and I were like rummaging through a basement and happened to cross an old folio like other scholars did years of footwork and came up with this theory or these hypotheses already. We came in and tested them. Um, and so a lot of scholars, there seemed to already be a split in the field. A lot of people were already like, yeah, this is, we believe for sure this is Shakespeare's play. And they, they had a lot of scholarship behind that. And then a lot of other people just outright rejected the idea for a lot of different reasons. I don't feel like we won too many people over, but the pe- it was kind of the classic uh, confirmation bias for the people who already believed it. They're like, I knew it. I knew that was Shakespeare all along. And the other ones kind of had a, a, a surprisingly negative reaction to it. Um, you know, there are a lot of people who said like, oh, well, you know, you can't just come in here with your computers and do Shakespeare research and yada, yada, yada. Uh, and, you know, my reaction to that was often like, well, we, I mean, we did. So, you know, it, like, so yeah. it goes. They, I, I do know that there were several people who, like, were on the fence. Who I, I would get emails from who said, like, oh, that's, I don't know how they necessarily felt about it, but they enjoyed it at the very least. Mm-hmm. So how much of this technology is, like, ready to be applied to anything? You could compare any two works and how much of it requires, like, fine tuning on your end? That's a good question. So a lot of this type of stuff, like there aren't, to my knowledge, any great kind of like super duper, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like super accessible or simple things. So like all of these things require, at least right now, some kind of like bolting together of different things so like you know bolting together which types of language analyses you want to do which types of machine learning algorithms you want to use and so on um you know the fact of the matter is 
a lot of this stuff, if you have those basic components, you can stick them together and do it right out of the box without tons and tons and tons of fine tuning. Like, you know, there's, there's some stuff that's like kind of general rules of thumb. So like um, for a lot of authorship attribution stuff, especially like kind of language analytic things, classification, um, support vector machines are, for example, one machine learning algorithm, and you can use different types of kernels within a support vector machine, like a linear kernel, uh, for example. And so there's certain things like that that other scholars have found, you know, through lots of rigorous uh, uh, work that, you know, certain types of algorithms or certain types of kernels tend to just be optimal for different types of tasks. Um, and so some of that is like you can fine tune it or you can just kind of by default say like, look, we know that these work very well in this context. So it's kind of a 50-50 domain expertise and just like using what's already out there. Um, and, you know, in my experience for a lot of that type of stuff, especially um, authorship attribution, uh, usually the limitation is not the tools so much as it is just the data, the data that you can actually get access to and the quality and the quantity of it. I have no idea if that actually answered your question. <laughs> yeah, I think so. So how do you check, how do you check for errors in these findings or like, what do you use as the standard to hold them up against? Like, I remember hearing about how early visual recognition AI, like for example, you could show it a bunch of like, yellow and black lines and it would say this is a school bus and it'll be like 98% confidence and then obviously it's not a school bus and it's gotten better over time but do you see the same type of thing with language so that's an interesting question so it depends it depends on kind of the paradigm that you're using um the the deeper you go into it the more complex it can get so for and i'm i'm probably going to butcher this finding um so take this with a grain of salt and like definitely dig back to the original paper. But, uh, you know, there's a bunch of stuff. I, one, of, one of my favorite researchers is Andy Schwartz at uh, Stony Brook University. Um, and he's a computer scientist, does lots of uh, really great stuff, which is doing, so like if I'm like 66% psychology, 33% NLP, I would say he's like the flip side of that. Computer scientists with just, really strong uh, sensibilities for psychology. And there's there's a lot of reasons for that, but I'll, I'll spare that. Anyways, um, you know, they've done some work and, and have, so they've done a lot of stuff on like predicting age, predicting gender, predicting personality from uh, social media language specifically, but other types as well. And, you know, often they find that's like, yeah, you can predict like somebody's age and gender uh, pretty well from their language, but you can often do as well, if not better, just like by, by skipping language altogether in your model and just putting in something like, um, you know, how many likes or how many followers people have and some of those kind of the, the social network properties of someone on social media. Um, and, you know, love what they, like they're very careful to make sure that they're like, accounting for all of this because it's really easy to just like you know age and gender are the classic ones where like if you're trying to predict something like uh, i'm trying to think you know openness to experience uh for example or conscientiousness there are age and gender differences in there and so if you just kind of jump in blindly and use you know the language data without digging in and looking really under the hood of this type of stuff 
uh, your models are often confounded. So you may be able to predict um, you know, something like conscientiousness pretty well. You can probably do a pretty good job estimating that. But if you haven't uh, controlled for things like age and gender, you may just be picking up on linguistic cues that are associated with age or gender, they're, they're inflating this. Um, so there's kind of a, a couple of bits. There's like the machine learning aspect of it, kind of the best practices for modeling and, and making sure you're using um, all the controls that you need to be using, or at least making sure that they're not a non-issue in the data that you have. But then there's also uh, just the, the plain question of actually just sitting down and reading the language data itself. Um, which is one thing, you know, as language analysis has gotten, it's really kind of exploded in the past few years. And everyone's, there have been more and more tools that make it easier and easier to do it. And so there's this bit of a gold rush of people doing language analysis research. Um, but a lot of them, you know, don't have a strong sense of like the best practices for doing this. And one of them being, you need to actually just sit down and read the data that you're analyzing. Um, not necessarily all of it. So if you're processing like, you know, 5 million Ask Reddit posts or something like that, you're not going to sit there and read every single one, but randomly subsample a thousand of them and sit there and really read them and think about them. Because some of it is just a data integrity issue. So, you know, oh man, I didn't realize that there are like extensive quotes in French in this text or something like that, that maybe you wouldn't have noticed if you just pulled it down from like a big database. Um, but alternatively, there's also going to be stuff in there. And this is a, something that we do commonly with topic modeling. So if we're trying to kind of find out what are the different themes that emerge from a collection of texts is often you may kind of look at a cluster of words and think like, oh, this is clearly like a family theme, like mother, father, sister, brother, something like that. Um, and then you actually go in and when you see how people are actually using those words, uh, it can completely... I guess for, for lack of a better term, like dispel how, what you thought it was that people were talking about or how it is that you thought they were using language. Um, so what you're describing sounds kind of similar to factor analysis. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, I mean, a lot of topic modeling is conceptually super duper similar to factor. So like it, uh -huh. for, um, for something like machine learning, they'll usually use some like principal components analysis or factor analysis as a data reduction technique. So like you're kind of like in a noisy way compressing down like a bunch of self-report questionnaire items or something like that. You can do the same thing with language and like meaningful clusters of words will kind of fall out in the same way that like an extroversion factor might fall out. That's how Big Five was originally created, right? They had like a whole bunch of different personality measures and then you factor analyze them and like these five results just emerge. That's right. Five, give or take. It's still like a, a point of contention. Like, uh, but yeah, in, in theory, so for, for the Big Five, it was very much the same idea where like factor analyses, really like Raymond Cattell was the big guy who, who got that ball rolling. Um, and, you know, I think he, his primary solution was like 16 factors, but most other people would, you know, there were like tons and tons of papers over the years that were like, oh, here's five factors. Someone else maybe found four, another person found six, but consistently most people were finding five using kind of the recommended criteria. Um, and, you know, as a 
actually just sidebar there. So there's people have also um, tried doing kind of similar stuff with language data. So just taking like a bunch of language data and saying, can we squish this down to just five factors? And if so, what does that look like? Um, the, the first author on that work was uh, Vivek Kulkarni, who's now uh, at Twitter, super smart guy. And actually, I think working with Andy Schwartz. Um, and they found very different uh, uh, dimensions or, or pretty quite different, we'll say. I'm not sure what the best adjective is. They found different things. <laughs> I'll let you determine the severity of it than like what a traditional big five approach would have found. So even this is something, uh, you know, well, I'm starting to go on a tangent here. So I'll, I'll pull back and, and hand it back That's to you. That's fine. Um, yeah. Uh, so I'm sure you've heard about the reproducibility crisis in psychology, especially social psychology. I'm wondering if the computational end of things is like, is it, has it been more robust? That's a good question. I would, you know, the truth is I, the people who are doing the computational stuff in the field, trying to, trying to think of an even-handed answer to give here. Yes and no is probably what I would say. I think, so my, my kind of deep down opinion is that psychology is still way behind the curve um, when it comes to doing computational stuff. So stuff that we take, uh, that, that other fields take for granted, even doing things like, you know, cross-validation and, and some of the kind of testing, even like holdout samples, stuff that was like suggested decades ago, psychology is still not great about doing it. Um, Compared to what other fields? Even stuff like uh, biology, some smart people, medicine, geology, um, and then anything where like computation has kind of been in the game for a minute. Even and people were doing uh, cross-validation, you know, business and marketing even like beat psychology to the punch on that. Uh, you know, it's still, it's gaining traction in the field, which helps, right? So like the more that people are, are kind of understanding these methods, even things like bootstrapping or, or bagging, bootstrapping, bootstrap aggregation, uh, the better they'll, they'll get at this. The people who are doing that, I would guess that their, their research is much more robust because they're being cautious to not kind of go in and make these big, messy, grand claims um, based on like, you know, a sample size of 30 and an overfit uh, GLM or something like that. Um, but, you know, there, there's always exceptions as well. You know, I, I won't, I don't want to like slander anyone or anything like that, but you can find examples in psychology, just like any other field of people who are kind of like using some of the computational approaches, um, but in a kind of hand wavy type of sense. They're not necessarily using them with the intention of doing the most rigorous or best research possible, but they're interested in using them simply because they, they dazzle the eye and they know that uh, other psychologists don't know enough about it to really kind of make them be rigorous with it, so to speak. My, my assumption is that's the minority though. Uh -huh. Yeah, that makes sense. So we should talk about this trend of things becoming more computational over time, because it seems like I guess, I guess, like you mentioned, it sort of starts off with, well, I guess with the fields that are literally computer science are most closely related to it. And then over time, the, the more distant fields become more computational. And obviously psychology is an example of that. But even 
more unexpected things like history or like like looking at Shakespeare, like we were talking about earlier. Now there's computational stuff. So do you think that's inevitable? That's a good question. I, inevitable, I mean, probably. Like, like I, I think that, I mean, like, I'm trying to think of a, a good example and I'm drawing a blank. I think that the computers and especially the accessibility of um, computational power. So not just like you can get access to a super powerful computer, but you know, like languages like Python, which I know is like 30 years old, but it, it's, it's become a much stronger language in the past decade or so which because it's such an accessible language, people have access to the computing power of the systems they're working on, if that makes sense. Um, like any kind of innovation or tool, as people gain increasing access to new tools and new methods, I think it's generally inevitable that they will take those and apply them to whatever it is that they're working on. So like you know, computational is, is such a generic term these days, but there's people in personality psych um, who are using, they're, they're doing it in the computational sense, but they're uh, using really kind of sophisticated hardware. So like smartphone sensing. So looking at the accelerometers and gyroscopes and, and kind of all, all these sensors within our smartphones to understand things about um, who we are and how we behave and how we think and how we interact with other people and so on. Anytime mm -hmm. there's new tools like this, I think people are going to kind of see them through the lens of whatever it is they're working on and think, how can I take that mm -hmm. and use it to, to kind of solve a question I couldn't solve before? Yeah. Yeah. That sounds really interesting. Maybe we could talk about the, the ethics of that. So, so for one thing, there's, well, the smartphones example you just gave is sort of more personal because it's like on your person, but then even social media posts and analyzing people's text, I guess, ha have there been any ethical, uh, discussions had about like whether we should be grabbing these these things from online i'm not accusing you of anything but <laughs> no, no, it's okay. oh, what do you mean this interview is over um yeah no there's been the, the, i feel like the discussion on it kind of waxes and wanes um there's i mean there's so many angles to it and i will say up front like i am there, it's going to take people who are far smarter than me to solve some of these these ethical questions so with, you know, for language data, for example, I remember this was probably about a decade ago now. Uh, this is back when like Facebook apps were still kind of like new and exciting and just about anybody could build a, a Facebook app and just kind of throw it up. And some, I can't remember if it was a company or maybe a research team had built an app that was using language analysis to try to uh, estimate depression scores. Um, and, you know, the, the kind of press cycle on that was like, oh, this is amazing. This is incredible. You'll be able to, we're going to, you know, it's kind of in the vein of like mental health and stuff like that. And I remember I encountered a news article that was like, that laid out like why it was so problematic. Like what you're doing is, and the idea behind the app, I think was like, if someone looks depressed, it'll notify their friend network. And so, you know, to try to kind of foster meaningful social connection and, and et cetera, et cetera. And this article pointed out like, you're literally telling people when someone is like at their most vulnerable or maybe uh, not, not in their best, like kind of judgment, decision-making mindset, you're, you are 
potentially putting up a huge red flag and saying this person can be taken advantage of more easily. Or like, you know, if there's people out there with kind of a, uh, who are looking to take advantage of them, they might be able to use that information. And that, at the time I was like, man, I, I never even would have thought of that. Um, and that, I know that the discussion has advanced so much more since then. Um, you know, there's a lot of interesting stuff uh, done by people in a lot of different spaces looking at things like not just what can we tell about you and it's not just like privacy concerns um but also like kind of what it says about other people so like there's uh uh david garcia is a, a super smart guy does complexity science um and he's done some work and, and written some really really smart pieces on something called shadow profiling so like let's say you don't have a Facebook account, but you know everyone that you know does. Based on that, we can figure out exactly what you're like based on kind of all these people around you. Wow, uh, so no one's safe. <laughs> yeah, no one's safe. And it's like, these are huge ethical issues that like, you know, there's, it, there's like, I think very little black and very little white and just tons and tons of different shades of gray. Um, you know, it, I know it's a bit of a cop-out. My my intuition is that for a lot of this stuff, you know, the classic kind of cliche is true. Like a lot of these tools, a lot of these methods and findings can be used for good or for more nefarious purposes. Um, I, I wish I had a better answer on like how to best navigate this stuff. You know, there, there's some stuff I think researchers, uh, at least in academic settings, are more sensitive to these things like uh, since GDPR. So like if I collect a bunch of data from the internet and someone asked me to delete like their data, like, of course I, I would do that. It's, I think there's still kind of these trade-offs in terms of how do you let people know that that's an option? How do you make sure that people are uh, participating with consent? So, you know, one thing, and this is an, another, so like, you know, around I don't even remember when this was, maybe 2011 or 2015, somewhere there, when all of the stuff on like Project Prism came out and th these kind of huge bombshells from, I think, WikiLeaks, that was like, oh, the government is listening to everything everyone is saying around the world and yada, yada, yada. You know, the, uh, initially, it, I felt like there were a ton of people who were super duper outraged about it. In some countries, like I think Germany uh, officially was like, this is unacceptable and we're going to start like enacting you know, some practices or legislature to try to like kind of curtail this and, and uh, you know, protect our citizens and so on. And then like a month later, nobody cared anymore. I was like, what? Like, you know, people don't actually seem to mind that much. And I have no idea what to make of that because to me, it's like whether or not somebody minds, um, that has not a whole lot of bearing on like the ethics of it, right? Because this is the thing as we've moved deeper into a computational space, as we can take old data and do things with it that we didn't even know we could do five years ago or 10 years ago. I can learn things, you know, if, if I have like a diary entry that you wrote 10 years ago, the stuff I can learn about you from that same entry then versus now are just absolutely worlds apart. Um, and so even if I give you data, you know, I, I view language data as something that's so 
deeply connected to some of the, the kind of lowest levels of our psychology, really fundamental to who we are as people. If I give you that today and you're like, well, you know, I'm just going to estimate how extroverted you are. That's great. 10 years from now, if you're like, I can figure out what your sexual orientation is. I can figure out, you know, whether or not you have cancer, all kinds of stuff from that same data set. You know, it, it's kind of like what the person didn't even know they were agreeing to that 10 years ago. Uh-huh. Right. So on the bad end of this profiling, we have like people targeting you for ads or even surveillance in, in, in other countries or maybe our own country too. Um, uh, but what about, let's close talking about the good aspects. Like, let's say we can build up very reliable profiles of what people are like based on whether that's their, their, their language or any, anything else we can gather. Mm-hmm. What, what good can we do with that? That's a great question. Um, and there are, there are a lot of different answers. And this is one of the things I think we're just really starting to seriously ask some of these questions. So there's, you know, there are a lot of hand wavy responses like, oh, we'll be able to like help people get treatment who need it and stuff like that. But that's not, that's not exactly like a practical answer, right? It's just like a, oh, you know, someday things will get better and we'll be able to do that. I think that there are a, a kind of a couple of directions. The, the one that I am most interested in uh, is basically going the exact opposite direction of all the kind of dark and spooky stuff um, that, that we talked about, which is give people greater self-knowledge. So if I can, you know, I think about something like, and this may not be the best example, but something like 23andMe or like Ancestry, you know, there are people who do the, um, they get the like saliva swab, do at least a, a partial mapping of your genome using like snip chipping or something like that. And then they say, okay, here's your heritage. You're, you know, 30% this, 20% that. You may be more prone to Crohn's disease than someone else or something like that. Um, uh, imagine a world where all that information is like super, super accurate, like 95 to 100% accurate. Having that information, being equipped with that information gives you greater agency. It allows you to make an informed choice about what you want to do with your life and uh, kind of what kind of outcomes you want for yourself. And if you have that information, then you are equipped with kind of better power to achieve whatever outcomes you want for yourself. So it's kind of a, a potentially more utopian view is rather than kind of give everyone else that information about you and then use it to kind of control or manipulate you or try to get you to buy a new pair of shoes or something like that. What if you were equipped with that information and you know something popped up that said like, you actually want a new pair of shoes. You didn't even know it yet, but your back has been hurting. Um, you know, they're kind of old and, and smelly and you're, you're not gonna get a date with that person at work because you got some nasty shoes and this is what you really want. So here's the information. Here are the outcomes that you could uh, achieve. Do with it what you will. Um, Greater self-determination, I think, is one of the possibly positive outcomes that we can get from a lot of this stuff. Yeah, that's a nice optimistic outlook on it. Ryan, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. Thank you.